Well, I don't know about you, but um, these last four weeks have flown by for me with this short little series we've been doing with uh, I Won't Back Down as our theme. We're gonna, next time we're together, we're going to jump back into the book of John and study the portrait. Uh, but here today is the last of our four studies in these individuals. David, who was incredibly courageous, took his battle on against Goliath. Daniel, we looked at as an individual who was taken from his home, hauled 500 miles away, and put in Babylonian captivity. And then last week, we looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their time spent in the furnace. If you grabbed one of the bulletins when you came in this morning, you may have noticed inside there is a little insert sheet. It's white. And what it has this morning, instead of filling the blanks, it has uh, some of the observations that I've made as I've worked through the study this morning and these last couple weeks. And the first thing I noted for specifically about David, if I was going to give him a character trait, it would be bold because he was incredibly bold. And the thing I noticed about Daniel was he was super focused. It's like a laser. He knew exactly what he was there for and he never took his eyes off the ball. And then I, there's RSB there and that's my mistake because I was thinking of Rack, Shack, and Benny from the VeggieTales video and... <laughs> I was supposed to change it before I printed it, so it should be Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but RSB is Rack, Shack, and Benny. So anyways, each of these individuals, what we've discovered along this four-week series is that they encountered a personal trial because of the culture that they lived in. The, the forces of the culture that surrounded them were so oppressive that they had to take a stand. And we discovered they were spiritually distinct, yet they were culturally relevant. They could speak into the society that they lived in. What we've noticed so far, though, is each of these guys had a great outcome. What we're going to look at this morning is one who did not have, by human standards, such a great outcome. Because there are consequences to taking your stand for the kingdom of Jesus. And sometimes those consequences are downright ugly. And knowing it up front helps you when you come in personally into those situations where you have to be bold for the kingdom. It helps to know up front that sometimes those consequences can be so ugly it can actually cost someone their life. Here's why it's valuable to know it up front because it keeps you from being double-minded about whether or not you're doing the right thing. There is boldness. There is boldness at a cost. And that's what I want you to look at this morning with me. So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, New Testament, book of Acts, chapter 6. I know your bulletin says Sap chapter 7. We're going to get there, but we're going to do just a couple verses in chapter 6 to help set it up. You need to know a little bit about early church history to understand where I'm going with this this morning. So first of all, what I want you to see, you'll see it on the screen and you can follow along in your own Bibles if you have them or in the, the Pew Bibles, is this verse, Acts chapter 6, verse 7, that tells us what's going on in the early church. Here it is. And the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So this is megachurch growth. This is a church that is growing exponentially. Now the last record we get is in Acts chapter 4 where it says there's 5,000 men in the church, not counting women and the youths. And very quick multiplication factors by the numbers that they were adding each day gets you to a church of 20,000 very quickly. 
And this church, this mega church, was encountering situations that caused them some difficulty. Their growth is explosive. As a matter of fact, it's astonishing that even some of the priests of the Jewish faith were abandoning Judaism and recognizing who Jesus was and coming to this church. So they've got this explosive growth, but anytime you've got an increase in numbers, there has to be an adjustment. Like us, we had to launch a Saturday night service in the middle of the summer to accommodate the growth of New Hope. But in their setting, what they had happen when they had explosive growth is that there were some complaints that began to rise up because they were overlooking a group. Look with me on the screen. Chapter 6, verse 1. A complaint arose... The widows were being overlooked. Now, this is why that's significant. In Jewish culture, it was responsibility of the community to care for the widows. However, these individuals who are coming to Christ by the thousands are now finding themselves being opposed by the Jewish community. So the widows are no longer accepted by the Jewish community. They're being ostracized, and they find themselves in the church, and no one's caring for them. And so the church has a responsibility to care for them. So the apostles are overloaded with all this growth that's going on, so they decide to appoint seven individuals, seven men who are very competent that everybody in the church approves of to take on some responsibilities as administrators. So that's what we see next in verse 5 of chapter 6 is that one of the individuals that they chose was a guy by the name of Stephen. It tells us a little bit about his characteristics. Look with me on the screen. The statement found approval, meaning the statement of selecting seven individuals, found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So the entire tens of thousands of people are behind this selection process, and they agree that Stephen should be chosen as one of the seven. And we're told in verse 8, Stephen was full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So right away, a young guy with four distinctive characteristics. What are they? He's full of faith. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He's full of grace. And he's full of power. So we've got an individual who's totally controlled by his faith. How does that work? If you read later today, chapter 7, in its entirety, chapter 7, verse 1 through 51, you're going to see that this young man really knew God's Word. As a matter of fact, he recites the history of Israel by memory and tells everybody that's listening to him what God did through the people. And because he understands God's Word so well, this empowers his faith. So he's very strong in his faith. He believes and understands God is sovereign over the universe. And that's what comes out in those verses in chapter 7. He also is convinced, because he understands the Bible so well, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the biblical prophecy. So this is a young individual who's full of power as a direct result of the Holy Spirit coming upon his life. And people are seeing it lived out. As a matter of fact, Jesus made a promise that individuals who were covered by the Holy Spirit would be full of power. Look with me on the screen, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So everybody's looking at Stephen. He's living out what Jesus had promised. Full of faith, full of power, full of grace, got all this head knowledge about Scripture, and we would say 
He is a well-armed warrior for the kingdom. This guy is super equipped, and he's capable. He has the capacity to take on anything that would come his way. Everything that he encounters is no match for him. So he needs to be equipped this way because he's about to be the target of a brutal assault. He's going to be the focus of some individual's execution efforts. That's where we're going to go right now. Let's look at what it looks like to come under attack. Go with me to verse 9 of chapter 6. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. So we got three different synagogues represented there right away. We know that according to archaeology, there were over 400 synagogues in Jerusalem at this time. The temple was the main place people would go to worship God, but they would gather in smaller facilities like this to study His Word and to worship together. But eventually, certain times of the year, they would go to the temple. We find them at a synagogue. And there's three synagogues who have sent people to come against Him. Why? Because they're in distress mode. Priests are leaving the fellowship and coming over to Christianity. People are coming in droves to Christ. The church is exploding. And so they decide to take one of God's people on head on. And there's some specific words that's used here. When it says they rose up and they argued with Stephen, this first word rose up is anastomy. Here's the definition of it. To stand upright, not meaning that they were sitting in a chair and decided to stand up, but it means standing in someone's face with force taking a position, a firm position. So that's, that's the stand-up word. Here's the argument word, sizateo, to investigate jointly, to dispute. So here's what's going on. These synagogues with their well-learned individuals standing with force, verbal debate in his face, taking him on about why he's saying what he's saying. So they're standing in opposition to him. Go with me on to verse 10. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. So the setting is they're in a synagogue, and they discover that their human reasoning, human intellect, is no match for God-given wisdom. They can't come up against him. And since they're unable to defeat him in a debate, they decide to change the rules. We're going to change the tactics. So they begin recruiting and coaching false witnesses. The word that's used there is hupabalo, and it means to prompt someone with an evil motive. So they've got these really evil motives, and they're using the same method they went after Jesus with. And they raise the most serious accusation you possibly can against somebody in first century Judaism. They accuse him, verse 11, it says, of blasphemous words. Blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They're going for the kill. We might say in our language today, they're going for the juggler vein. They're absolutely focused on taking this guy out. So they're accusing him of doing this. Blasphemy in the Bible is speaking evil against God speaking evil against his law, or speaking evil, in their case, against the temple. And it was a serious crime punishable by death, according to Leviticus. So here's what we discover now in verse 12. 
They can't reason with him, so they plant false witnesses. They still can't win, so they drag him physically away. The word that's used here when it says dragged him away is sinarpazo, to seize with violence. So now it's gone from a debate to a physical encounter where they lock arms around him and drag him by his heels before the Supreme Court of the land. They're very determined to take him out. And they charge him with blasphemy against the law and against the temple. Go with me to verse 13. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place, meaning the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Incessantly speaks means he won't shut up. The guy keeps talking about Jesus constantly. And despite, I want you to notice this, despite intense opposition, he never stops talking. He never backs down. And finally, we get to the real source of their rage, this Nazarene Jesus. That's what really sets them off. That's the source of their rage. I hope you understand it this way. God gave me a gift this week. I'm studying on Tuesday. Typically, I study at home so I can avoid any disruptions. And so I take two days a week usually and just study at my house. And there's a knock on the door. And there's a couple individuals who had walked up the sidewalk. And I caught them out of the corner of my eye. And I couldn't make out what they had in their hand. And it was two ladies, one about 37, 38, and another one about 25, and uh, they said, do you have a minute to talk? I said, possibly. Um, what's on your mind? And they said, how do you feel about the circumstances the world is in right now? <laughs> ha, that was going to be fun, I thought. So I considered for a minute what I would say to them. And uh, they went on. I let them go for 10 minutes. And they're talking about their position and why they believe what they believe. And um, they finally said, what do you do? I said, I'm home studying because I'm a pastor and I'm getting ready to teach on what it means to be persecuted for your faith. Oh, so we believe the Bible together. That's so great to meet somebody who believes the Bible the same way we do. I said, wow, you know, I'm thinking we probably don't believe the same way. Um, and they said, well, why would you say that? And I said, well, for one, I know what organization you're with. And they said, well, how would you possibly know that? And I said, well, there's only two organizations that really send people out door to door knocking on doors, and I said, I'm probably guessing you're Jehovah's Witness. And uh, they said, how did you know? And I said, well, the watchtower in your hand was a giveaway, first of all. And uh, I said, here's, here's my issue. Um, we don't take the same interpretation of the Bible. And they said, well, we, we have the Bible right here. Let us read you some verses. I said, okay, go ahead. So they read them to me, and, and I asked them what translation they had, and they explained that to me. And uh, then the 25-year-old gal, gal said to me, um, you know, it's just so great when faiths can talk to faiths like this because Jesus is so tolerant, he just wants all the world religions to get along. And I'm thinking, you've never been to my church. <laughs> and, and, and I had to respond to her, you know, I'm going to take issue with you on that. That is the least characteristic that you would accuse Jesus of having of being tolerant of all the world faiths. And I said, here's what Jesus said. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And I said, you can't knock on enough doors to earn your way into heaven. It's grace and grace alone. Christ and Christ alone. You need forgiveness of your sins. Now, at that point, they did something I've never seen a Jehovah's Witness do before. Wow, it's really getting late. We're going to have to go. Okay? So, before they left, because the 25-year-old gal was really interested in what I was saying, I noticed that the gal who was in her 30s grabbed her by the elbow and started pulling her along, saying, we've got people in the car waiting for us. And I said, here's what I want you to know. It's not just enough to know about Jesus. You have to know Jesus. It's a personal relationship. See, it wasn't enough for Stephen to talk in the temple or to talk in the synagogue about the things of God. It's when he declared Jesus that they got ticked at him. And it drove them to rage when he brought up the name Jesus. So that's why they said, this Nazarene Jesus. Because they couldn't give a more derogatory term. They hated people from Nazareth. And so they're associating Jesus immediately with being from Nazareth, and they're denigrating him. So here's what you'll notice every time you're accused by someone. There's always a thread of truth working through the false accusations. Yes, Stephen was speaking against the temple because they turned the temple into an idol. Yes, Stephen was speaking against the law in the way that they used the law. They've woven some truth through it, but he wasn't blaspheming God. But they've woven this thread of truth, and then they ultimately summed it up by saying, he's saying things against our culture. You notice what they said there in those verses? He's saying things against our way of life, the things Moses has handed down to us. Why? The charge of blasphemy worked against Jesus, so why not use it again? They're very quick to use it. We can take out Jesus with blasphemy. We can certainly take out this guy. So let's review this real quick. He goes from verbal debate in a friendly synagogue where people are supposed to talk about spiritual things, physically dragged away on his heels before the Supreme Court of the land. They've made their accusations against him, and now everyone's going to focus their attention on him, waiting for his response. So Scripture says... They focused their gaze on him. Go with me to verse 15. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. So the courtroom went silent. Everybody's looking at him. And I love this point of contrast. He's accused of blaspheming the God of the universe. And the God of the universe decides to make his face glow like an angel. What is the one other person in human history that we're told, according to the Bible, had his face shine? Moses. The very person that they've accused him of speaking against, God makes his face shine just like Moses. So they should have got it. I mean, this is like a stamp of approval here. God himself puts his glory on Stephen's face. And they're saying it's like the face of an angel. Look with me up on the screen at 2 Corinthians 3.7. The sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face. So you picture the setting, what's going on here, and the room 
you could hear a pin drop. They're waiting for his response. Now, you're going to want to really pay close attention to what he says next and watch him very closely because he's full of the Spirit. He's full of grace. His face is shining like an angel and he's in the midst of this room where he's on the fight for his life. And what he does next is put his finger in their sternum and it's blow after blow of presenting why they're wrong. So later today, I really encourage you to read chapter 7 of Acts because that's his legal defense. But in a nutshell, here's what he does. He's accused of blaspheming the temple, so he talks about the history of the temple, helping them to understand how they've turned the temple into an idol. He's accused of rejecting the law, so he points them back to God's law. He's working point after point with them, and the tension is building in the room to the degree where it's about to explode. Now understand, he's lecturing the Supreme Court, telling them how they're supposed to act. And they've got to be wondering, where is he going with all this? Because it's 51 verses long. But they let him play it out, and their wait is over. Because having laid out the foundation, he's now about to punch them right between the eyes. Here's his closing argument, verse 51 of chapter 7. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Here's a point to note in the midst of the trial for his life, he's going on the offensive. He's not on the defensive, cowering in the corner, oh, please don't hurt me. He's going on the offensive. And he tells them exactly what they are. You're pretenders. You have the law, but you're not living according to it. You're not doing what God called you to do. As a matter of fact, you're stiff-necked. You've seen that in Scripture before if you've read the Bible. What it means is somebody who's obstinate. Matter of fact, they're so firm against God that their neck is set in place. They're not willing to bow the knee. And then he says, you're uncircumcised. Uncircumcised in your heart and in your ears. And to say that to a Jewish believer in the first century was to say, you're not forgiven of your sins. You're not someone who's yielded to God. It's the ultimate condemnation. And the next thing seals the deal because he quotes Jesus when he says, which one of the prophets did you not kill? Look with me on the screen, Luke eleven forty seven. This is Jesus speaking. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. So do you see he's building this parallel right to the conclusion where he says, and you murdered the righteous one. So he's not trying to defend himself. He's pointing everything back to Jesus. He totally understands Jesus is the one. So now they have to do something with this information. Verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. It'd be so much better if it said they were cut to the quick and they repented. But that's not what it says. And they began gnashing their teeth. Society has just come face to face with the truth of Jesus. 
and it drives them to rage. And he's ripping the veneer right off from their life and he's exposing them as hypocrites. And rather being broken, they're infuriated. They're furious with what he's saying. And he has a purpose in this. I put it in your notes and I want you to see it on the screen. There is a purpose in doing what he's doing. Here's the purpose. He's challenging the status quo mentality. People who believe that they're good enough that they can work their way into heaven because that's what Judaism is, that you can do it by works. He's challenging their thinking that you are not good enough. You can't work your way in. So he's challenging the status quo mentality for this reason, to clear a path for a response to Jesus. That should be the reason you enter into a debate every time you enter into a debate or a discussion, to clear the path so that Jesus can be seen. Not debate for the sake of debate. Now these individuals, they take everything as he's saying as a frontal attack. They're taking it as everything they could possibly hear against the religion that they believe. So it says they're cut to the quick. The word is diaprao, and it was used specifically of the Caesars. When the Caesars killed people because they didn't like what somebody was saying, they had them cut in half with a saw. They use the word diaprao because that's literally what they're feeling. They're cut in half. He's opened them up, and they begin gnashing their teeth at him. Here's the word that's used, brukio, to set your teeth in rage. You ever seen anybody so angry? I am going to kill you. They're talking through their teeth. They grind their teeth. Their jaw is set in place. This is at least the third time that this council has heard the plan of salvation. They've heard it from Jesus themselves. Jesus spoke to them directly. The apostle Peter and the apostles gave the plan of salvation. Look with me up on the screen. Acts 5.27, the high priest is talking to Peter here. The high priest questioned them saying, we had gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So they've heard from Jesus himself. They've heard from Peter. They've heard from Stephen. And yet their heart is so hard. They're not open to what he's saying. And their anger escalates into wrath. You ever encountered someone who refuses what you have to say about the things of Jesus? If Jesus, Peter, and Stephen can't get through to them, how hard can the human heart be unless the Spirit's at work? So if we could see into the spiritual realm right now, in this setting, we would see the demons are beginning to circle like vultures over a carcass because there's about to be a dead body. And in the midst of this, Stephen has this incredible sense of calm and peace over him. How is that possible? How can you have that kind of peace in the midst of a storm? Jesus said he gave a promise that you would have that kind of peace. Look with me up on the screen. Luke 12, 11. 
When they bring you before the synagogue and the rulers and the authorities, do not become anxious about how or what you should speak in your defense or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Is that not a cool promise from God? You've got that promise. The Spirit is going to come upon you and enable you with the ability to bring glory to God. Not to yourself, but to speak of God. So that's what's going on with Stephen. And his next declaration raises the accusation of blasphemy to a frenzied pitch. I am convinced at this point, if he had stopped, if he had said nothing else, they would have given him the 39 lashes customary to Jewish tradition and sent him out. They would have beat him within an ounce of his life, but they would not have killed him. But what he said next left them with no choice. Go with me to verse 55. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven. Stop right there. I had to look at that and say to myself, what caused him to look up? What's going on there? He's on trial for his life. He's in the Supreme Court. People are grinding their teeth against him. And he decides to look up. Why? Then I was reminded of what happened in Acts chapter 1 when Jesus was lifted up from the earth. Look with me up on the screen. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. He was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So what's Stephen doing? I know that my Redeemer lives. And he's looking for him. He's looking for his Redeemer. Like Job said, I believe that my Redeemer lives and he will take his stand upon the earth in the last day. That's what's going on. He knows his life is in danger. And he's looking for his only source of help. So it says in verse 55, and gazed and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Look, look, there he is. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? That's what the word behold means. Are you kidding me? This is in the midst of a courtroom. This is an incredible outburst in a legal proceeding. He's ignored everything going on and saying, look at what I see. I see not only the Shekinah glory, we're told that first, but I see Jesus standing at his right side. Why would that make them go ballistic? Because Jesus said, that's where I will be. As a matter of fact, it's exactly where he should be based on what we read in Scripture. That took their mind back to a previous trial because only a short time ago they had another prisoner in the courtroom and the high priest Ananias said to Jesus himself, tell us now, tell us the truth. Are you the Christ, the Son of the living God? Jesus' response It is as you say, and, what's the other part? 
Look up on the screen, Mark 14, 62. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. See, Stephen's seeing and he's confirming exactly what Jesus said. You're going to see me at the right hand of God. What are they going to do with this now? This is the very reason they killed Jesus. Because it says immediately after he made that claim, they hauled him out and put him on the cross because they considered it blasphemy. So now Stephen is saying the exact same thing. And to not kill him would be to admit that their decision about Jesus was wrong. Go with me to verse 57. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. They lose it like school children. La, 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 la. I'm not going to hear what you're saying. They're screaming at him. And the highest court in the land is thrown aside all dignity absolutely yelling at him. We get a really vivid picture of what's going on with the Sanhedrin. These two words that are used, when it says crying out with a loud voice, it's one word in the Greek language, the word kradzo, to scream at the top of your lungs, shrieking, and they're covering their ears, rushing forward, the same word that's used to describe the pigs whom Jesus cast the demons into, hormao, is used here rushing forward, plunging on Stephen while they're screaming at him with one goal in mind. Go with me to verse 58. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now the Sanhedrin had no authority whatsoever to execute people. That was reserved for Rome itself. The Praetorian Guard, they were the only ones able to carry out executions so that they get some semblance of legality. They remove him from the temple and they take him outside the city because that's what Leviticus commanded them to do. They're supposed to follow the law. But before stoning him, the witnesses do what they're supposed to do. They take off their robes and they lay him at the feet of a witness. Here's what they're told to do. Deuteronomy 17.7 the hand of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So that you understand the setting, the Mishnah was written, which is a series of oral traditions that was written down about how to carry out things like this. And the Mishnah had a very specific directive. When you take the accused out of the city, you take him to a cliff at least 10 foot high, if not higher, and push him off the cliff. If he does not break his neck when he falls and hits the ground, the first witness, remember these are false witnesses, are supposed to pick up a boulder, carry it over to the edge of the cliff, and drop it on the chest of the accused, crushing him. If that doesn't kill him, the second witness, there's supposed to be two witnesses, is supposed to pick up a boulder, drop it off the cliff, and crush him. And if that doesn't kill him, then the people began gathering rocks up, loosening their arms, and chucking the stones in order to kill him. So we find that they laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. He had no idea when he positioned himself right up front so he could be near the action that what he was about to witness would transform his life. It would totally set him on a path in which things would take place to alter his destiny. But that's another story for another time. 
We're not going to get into it today. These individuals now are pressing forward, stoning and pitching rocks at Stephen, mercilessly taking off after his head, trying to hit him with the killing stone. And in the midst of the flying stone zinging by him, he has the ability to say, Lord Jesus. Look with me up on the screen, verse 59. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. So the fall didn't kill him. The first boulder didn't crush him. The second boulder didn't crush him. He still has the presence of mind to fall to his knees. It says verse 60, Then falling on his knees, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Remember what you saw in the very beginning of this teaching? Stephen, a man full of grace, full of power, full of faith, full of the Spirit. So full of grace that he's praying for his executioners as they pound the life out of him. And death came and he's ushered immediately into the presence of Christ. Because Scripture says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so the Lord that he was just seeing from planet Earth, he's now right in his presence. What do you think the first thing was that Jesus said to him? Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome home. That's where the story of Stephen ends. But his death was just the beginning. And I've told you this through each of the four-week studies that we've done so far. The furnace experience that you go through is not about you. You're part of a much, much bigger story. What was going on with Stephen was not just about Stephen. It was about what was next. Look at this quote from Augustine. He's one of the early church fathers, lived way, way, way back when. If Stephen had not prayed, the church would not have had Paul. He prayed for God to forgive his executioners. This event, this prayer, forever impacts the course of human history because you know what happened next. Go with me. This is the only verse we're going to look at in chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death, and on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, And they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So there's a bomb that's detonated here by the murder of Stephen. And the death of Stephen was a catalyst to begin the persecution such as people had never witnessed before. Now think about this, church. There's no giant that's been killed this day. There's no young man that just got a great job in the Babylonian kingdom. Three young guys were not just rescued from the furnace. There's no last-minute rescuing going on here. But yet what took place ignited the growth of the church around the entire world. No one understood that's what God was going to use. This is what Jesus said. Look with me up on the screen, John 15, 20. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Your same Jesus said this, Acts 1.8, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Remember what we just read at 8, verse 1? 
they were scattered as a result of the persecution to where? Judea and Samaria. When Jesus said that, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, no one knew that it would require the life of a young man who would say, I won't back down. Even if you kill me, I'll pray for my executioners, but I'm not changing my position. That's what we've been learning about these individuals. A harsh lesson was learned for the church that day. Mega church. Looking at one of their own being executed. And here's the lesson. To take up the cross of Jesus means to forever alter the course of your life. It affects your job, whom you're in relationship with, your friends, everything about you. And suddenly for these individuals, Jerusalem was no longer safe to live in. As a matter of fact, the entire world was no longer safe to live in. There was a storm of persecution that began that day that has not relented in our lifetime. The Caesars began carrying out the executions, putting people on poles to light the streets of Rome at night with, cutting apostles in half, hanging them upside down, throwing them to the gladiators. This very day while we sit here in church this morning, there's a man in prison in Iran. He's been given a chance four times to recant his faith. He's a pastor, and he's named the name of Christ. And four times his judge in the courtroom has said, it will cost you your life unless you renounce your faith. And praise God, he has not done that. We don't know if he's going to be released. I keep praying for him all the time. When you take your stand for the Lord, people who are opposed to the things of God will do what they can to silence you. We saw it with David. We saw it with Daniel. We saw it with Rakshak and Benny. And now we see it with Stephen. Here's the three points I want to send you out with this morning. They're in your notes. They're going to be up on the screen as well. First thing, look for opportunities. Not obnoxiously. Nobody likes obnoxious people. But look for opportunities to speak about your convictions. When the conversation has a natural opening, don't be afraid to speak into it. Secondly, speak the truth. Not watered down. Speak what you know to be true from God's Word. And number three, Leave it with God. Don't pound someone to death with it. Leave it with God and let Him give the increase. That's what He said His job was. So one, look for opportunities. Two, don't water down the truth. And three, let God give the increase. Would you pray with me, church? Lord God, we come before You as people who have just heard of a of a story that seems like we lose when in fact we win. Your purposes go beyond our understanding and your capacities certainly go beyond our ability to comprehend. You've promised that you would give us the spirit when we need it to make a defense for our argument. Father, we take confidence in that promise. I believe there's individuals here today in this room that this week will come to situations in which they will have to defend you and they will have to take a stand. God, in the midst of that, I ask that you would make the men and the women, the students, the children of this church bold for your kingdom. Allow us, Father, to be able to say proudly, I won't back down. So God, I ask that you would empower this church that we might be witnesses for you even when we think we can't. 
More than anything, Father, is our desire to give glory and honor and praise to the one who gave everything for us. It's in his name we pray, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.